Welcome, this is the Collective Nightmares Podcast. Horror films are our collective nightmares. We offer a sociological perspective on horror films and start with horror films as a launching off point to discuss. We discuss larger questions about life and living and society and all those sorts of things. My name's Marshall Smith and I've been drawn to horror because I have found... I. I, I, it took me a long time to sort this out, but I think that I have always been more more scared of conformity rather than deviance, and so I've I've found the horrific and the transgressive more interesting than the quote unquote normal or typical. My name is Laura Patterson, and Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado. And uh, I have always been drawn to horror because I, I actually think it's through our most horrific qualities and also our most horrific experiences that people really have the greatest need and the greatest ability to connect with each other. This is a Halloween episode, doubly so. It's October 30th, and we are stretching our schedules to go see Halloween. The new Halloween, 2018, Written and directed by David Gordon Green. There were some other co-writers for the screenplay. And starring, among others, most notably, Jamie Lee Curtis. And spoilers in this episode for the original Halloween. This Halloween. So 1978 and 2018. Summer of 84. Once again, we saw it at the Alamo draft house at an all for alamo screening <laughs> where which i guess i, I had some vague no- i i must have had some vague notion that they did that if you've taken your son to see some of them i i didn't fully realize it, w- it was nice in that there were no trailers so there was nothing to try and ignore or step out of the theater for however they leave the lights on like a little bit and they say that some squirming or something is allowed which typically I probably would not have been okay with, but we're the only people in the theater. Because no one wants to take their toddler to see Halloween. <laughs> That's the most bizarre thing ever. I've, I have taken my almost five-year-old son to go see some movies at the Alamo, uh, all, ch- children's movies at these screenings where they leave the lights on and the kids can kind of squirm around. I have no idea why they were having a children's screen screening of Halloween. Is it only for children? Could it be? Is Who it... else would it apply to? I mean... The developmentally disabled? I have no idea. I have no idea either. I, it's, it's a perfect thing for a toddler that you have the lights on. They can kind of wander around. The rules are lax about talking. I have no idea why you would do that for Halloween. That was really funny, actually. And nobody else was there because there is no demographic for that type of screening. So that was kind of cool. Apparently not. Other than people who misread the information. <laughs> it seems like, yeah, like you said, if you're going to take whatever, say 10 as like a low end age to take your kid to see Halloween, Tom, you should probably be able to sit for a whole hour and a half. In the dark? Two, two hours in the dark without... 
Still no screens allowed, which I also I still appreciated. But yeah, that was interesting. Alamo is facilitating young child viewing of. <laughs> I have no idea. I think it was a mistake. I want to jump in and talk about the movie. Yeah. Though. Okay. Okay. Well, if you're excited, jump on in, Laura. I'm sorry. I should do. Here's the synopsis from IMDb. Laurie Strode confronts her longtime foe, Michael Myers, the masked figure who has haunted her since she narrowly escaped his killing spree on Halloween night four decades ago. That was crucial. <laughs> I was going to say, but you're reiterating the, like reading the summary actually is a good starting point for what I wanted to talk about, which is that it's Halloween again. It's basically the same type of movie over again, 40 years later. And I actually, that's what I spent a lot of time thinking about when I was watching the movie was why would we want to be seeing this we as a culture, right? Why would we want to be seeing this movie again? And what does it, what's different about watching it now as a contemporary movie, but basically the same movie that it was, oh God, that's so long ago, my gosh, 40 years ago. Um, It's the same, the thing that's being presented to us on the screen is very, very similar, but how does that read differently now compared to such a long time ago? And that's really where my mind was spinning around for a lot of this. And so that's where I'd like to jump in. Are you okay with starting there? Yeah, I suppose. Is that inspired in part because of Matt's focus? Our last thing that we recorded was Freddy's Revenge, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. And our first and so far only guest, Dr. Matt Brown, was really interested in seeing it with... uh, It was part of a big gay matinee. It was a LGBTQ-friendly or identifying audience primarily. And he was very interested in watching this film with that audience specifically. We had no audience. However, that's a movie that's 30-something, 32 years ago. And we're still watching that, too. So apparently we're revisiting. That's interesting. I don't know. Maybe that was bouncing around in my head somewhere. The experience today was that I felt myself getting a little bit bored in the sense that I feel like I had seen this already. And when I start to get bored, my mind starts to try to go somewhere. And once it went there, then I was super interested for the rest of the movie because then I was having a really interesting conversation, I thought, with myself in my head while watching the movie. <laughs> so that's where I left wanting to, wanting to start talking. But if you have some other less jumping right into the deep end kind of stuff you want to start with, that would be okay too. Yeah, I, I would just start with, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I thought it was, I thought it was extremely well made. The music, which... John Carpenter apparently did with his one of his kids and somebody else, a name I didn't recognize, was was again classic. It did everything that I wanted a slasher to do, and there was enough for me there was enough variation to keep it interesting, particularly in relationship to the original Halloween film. But I did at some point find myself thinking if you were not super familiar with the original Halloween, actually, I think you would still enjoy the film, but I think you would miss some some appreciation of it. But I really, I whatever, I enjoyed it. I thought it was just exactly what it needed to be. I don't think I would put it amongst our films that spark, within the narrative, these really wonderful sociological, philosophical questions, but... It's interesting to think about why we are still enamored with this narrative 40 years later. I mean, it's done very well at the box office, so far as I know. Oh, so now I just want to ask you something about something you just said. 
But what you said there was enough variation to kind of keep you interested. What kind of variation? The category of variation that was most common was a reversal of positions of Lori and Michael. I mean, there were a number of direct direct quotes in terms of the shots, most prominently when he pushes her out the window and she lies and he looks down at her and she's there, the body's there and she's dead or so he or so we think. And then we cut away and then we cut back and Lori is gone. Um, I mean, that was virtually identical to how that scene is shot, but with Michael in the first, in the original Halloween, in the 1978 version. So things like that I thought were interesting. I thought it was interesting. Uh, variation, there were people of color. There were black folks. Um, there was the black detective who didn't talk a lot, but he was there. There was the kid she was babysitting was black, which is great. There was the couple who were doctors who were just like background characters who were also, I think, black, which great, good for the, good for them. So I, I would still, it would have been nice to have some more prominent. I think the doctor could have been black. Um, I think, I mean, the other detective was white, but he was from the original film. So that really needed to be the same. And, you know, the family, I guess the husband could have been black. Um, but still, you know, it was something. It was some kind of effort. And those are the first things that come to mind. And then I guess the crucial variation, which was a re- which is a real common critique of, there's a feminist argument about the original Halloween that it is that she, you know, as as one of the original final girls, Laurie Strode is important because she fights off Michael Myers and she is resourceful and she she's agentic and she pushes the narrative and the then the real critique of that is ultimately it's dr loomis who comes in and shoots him and saves the day so ultimately the man a man is someone who has to come in and actually finish him off and in this it wasn't it was a you know it was a it was a matriarchal lineage who was able to exterminate him grandmother mother and daughter working together which is uh so it wasn't a, it was it was no longer a final girl it was a final w- w- women group of women um which uh i think that's a um i mean that's it's a big difference in relationship to the first one and that particular critique in specifically of it undermining the otherwise prominence of her character of Laurie Strode in that in that film so those sorts of things. I like what you're saying there. I think because the general plot structure was so similar, I was tempted to dis- not dismiss it, but I I kept asking myself, what what could I be getting out of this? What you know, and, and that's where my mind was sitting. But I do appreciate the things you're saying because I think those are important updates, even if not you know they don't turn the movie upside down, but they're they're important things to have there. Yeah. So it has done well at the box office. Yeah, so far as I know. I think it was number one. Budget of estimated ten million. This is according to IMDb. Opening weekend seventy six million. I mean that's seven hundred percent return. That's and then gross so far USA one hundred twenty six. It's not the original in terms of return, but that's 
what is that? Twelve hundred percent return. That's and change so far. Yeah, that's moneymaker for sure. That's definitely uh, Hollywood success. Especially because it's yeah early. I mean, it's not even Halloween night. I would think a number of people would go to see it tonight and tomorrow night, for sure. Why? Why? Why do you ask? So I have some interesting thoughts. I think on on its just popularity and its place historically here. And I, I will admit that history of anything is not my terribly strong suit. So I would like you to jump in with this on me because I'd like to try to weave together what I was thinking about throughout the film. If you're if you're up for that now, yeah. starting with. So when the first film came out, we're talking late 70s, that was, I always think of that wave of slasher films as being at the end of what was a decade or so at least of much more edgy, progressive, something horror films that were coming out in the grindhouse genre, which we've talked about, like Last House on the Left. And so then you have a, a watering down of those types of films and the rise in popularity of slasher films among the general public, which was seen as this really transgressive thing, but really compared to the, artistically speaking, in terms of like what was being put out there by the people making the film, it was a much, 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 much tempered down version of something that had been going on for probably a decade that most people, you know, that was too out there for most people, I think, to, to be palatable to most people. And so, and I think that the argument about the popularity around this time in, say, like the early 80s of these types of movies was that you had a, an uprising in conservative ideology. And so this idea that we're going we're gonna to reestablish normalcy by having a slasher movie where we've got the villain and we get to, we get to, sh- we get to espouse all of our positive values about, you know, family and whatever normal is and have a, a terrible monster that we're going to fight off in order to do that and at the same time demonize things like sexuality and that sort of thing. Is it, Am I roughly on track with your understanding of this so far? Yeah, that was the primary argument and then the... That was the primary argument and it was further bolstered by the notion that with a sequel it was... With the prevalence of sequels, it was there was always a threat to the normal that was still looming, and you couldn't ever rest assured that some outsider uh, or monstrous thing w- wouldn't reappear and and rechallenge the the normalcy. And it was also Vera Dika. Vera Dika wrote that it once there was a formula established, it was further reassuring because the slasher films borrow uh, followed such a such a strict formula and once it was formulaic it the slashers in particular were formulaic it was the how these things happened that became much more interesting rather than the what was going to happen so after you met past that initial few it was okay we all know what's going to happen now the question is how and who and it became more just a celebratory celebration of process, and I think that's uh, some, somehow that sort of that further ideologically aligns with this comfort and normalcy. That's interesting because that's going to tie right into some of the things that I was thinking about now. Oh. Interesting. Okay, cool. I, I like this line of thought. So the experience then at the time of seeing a movie like this would have been, I, I would assume, more so that the the bad guy, you, that you were afraid of the bad, that, that it induced fear, right? And the, the experience of fearing something bad and then watching like normal triumph over this thing that you're fearful of was somehow reaffirming or reestablishing what the norm is. Watching it now, I thought it felt very different to me. And, you know, I also, 
I'm older, I've been desensitized somewhat by watching a whole lot of horror films, you know, over my life. And so maybe that's different. But it felt to me like, you know, this, this type of movie has been around for so long and everybody does know the formula roughly. And this film really didn't deviate from that very much in terms of overall plot structure. And so I found, first of all, that I wasn't scared at all. And secondly, it was still, it was still comforting. It was still, it was almost fun and cozy to sit there and watch this movie and watch Halloween play out again with the people that you're familiar with. And, you know, there was, there was even the scenes that were supposed to be scary didn't feel scary at all. They just felt, oh, it's that again. Oh, look, it's, you know, it's the same essential thing, thing I've watched a whole lot. And, and I was wondering what is different then, like what makes, what would make it appealing now then if it's no longer sort of this fear-based, you're, you're, it's you against the bad guy. But now if it's almost this like comforting experience, which is kind of what you're saying, that there's like a, because of a formula, there's a, a comfort, I guess, in sitting there and watching that. And it, it made me wonder if there was almost a nostalgia present day or if there could be a nostalgia that this could tap into for the type of bad guy, and I don't just mean person, you know, but just whatever monster that you're fighting that's very easily encapsulated that something like Mike Myers, that it's right there, you know what it is, you obviously you know how to kill it. Okay, he's pretty hard to kill, but still. In that in present times, you know, the, the speech that the kid gave at the beginning about oh in the a long time ago, whatever, this he he killed a couple people, like big deal. That's not even that much of a thing. And now your grandma like still can't get over it. She got away. Um, that, you know, faced with issues like global warming and terrorism and various globalization related things, that we've got a lot more sort of amorphous problems on our hands now than maybe we did at the time period then, or at least to some extent that might be true. I'm just throwing this out as an idea. And that people might find it actually very comforting to go back to a time where the monster is so clearly the monster and the process is so clearly the process. And it actually made me think of something from environmental sociology, which that's very often been um, a commentary around environmental views that environmental problems were more easily dealt with in like the times of the 60s and 70s because they were easier to see. Your river down the street from you was on fire and so you knew you needed to do something about water pollution or there's a hole in the ozone layer and we know what it's coming from and we need to stop this one thing. And that support for environmental issues became harder to garner over time because when you look at things like global warming, like now our problems are dispersed, they're spread out across countries, it's, we're not even clear on what exactly it is to do to stop them or how to stop them and it's not happening necessarily right in your yard in such a visible way as like the river catching fire, you know? And that that's just a different mentality. The people have a harder time wrapping their heads around that and acting in accordance, even if they think they want to be pro-environmental, they have a hard time doing that because they can't see the monster so clearly and know exactly what to do. And so the, the present day, this really might play into that a lot. It might play into a nostalgia. Like, instead of being, maybe as you were in the 80s, afraid of the monster and reestablishing normalcy of the good that overcomes it, to actually find comfort in the monster and saying the whole process, like, no, it's not scary anymore. It's just so nice to see a battle that's so darn clear cut and watch it play out. And that also, I thought, tied into the stuff that they were going into with Laurie in the film. And, you know, maybe I'm stretching a bit here, but... She's got, you know, a couple failed marriages and she apparently had an alcohol problem and whatever. And she's so fixated on this situation with Michael that was or wasn't like, like that kid's speech at the beginning. I mean, yes, it was a bad thing. Also, maybe she could have gotten over it. I don't know. Anyway, that she's like so fixated on that because 
it's tempting to want to fixate on the problem that you can address that we really want to see we want we want to see a battle that plays out in our lives that we can kind of control and handle and and it made her both seem paranoid and and crazy she was right in the film in the sense that this did actually play out later but she was also paranoid and crazy and that's not really a way to live and she probably did have all these other problems in her life that got overlooked and probably caused more harm in her life than he even maybe caused because she was so focused on this you know that it's like the same that maybe our tendency to be there and want to watch it is the same kind of thing where just like she spent her time focusing on this one villain because it was concrete we're there watching this reenactment of this one concrete villain because we just have the same kind of drive like rather than dealing with the complicated problems in our lives we want to see that sort of battle play out i think there's a lot of agreement for what you're saying and it makes me think of a classic cultural distinction within sociology and i wouldn't even know who to cite for it because it's so uh, widespread but the difference between individualistic and collectivist collectivist and individualist cultures individualist cultures of which the united states is often used as a prime example are really cultures where the focus is the individual, individual responsibility, individual res- uh, responsibility for both good things and bad things. So it aligns with our notion of meritocracy, where supposedly in America you get to where you are in life due to your merit, meaning your work and your talent. And in collectivist cultures, the concern is really the group whether that's the family or the work group or the business or the community, those are the needs and and successes and efforts that are to be prioritized over the individual. And uh, Japan is often used as a good example of that. And that makes me think of that because with your discussion of the environment, I I mean, I, I agree with you with, a lot of things with the exception of global warming where we know CO2 emissions are the key primary ongoing issue that would, and if we reduced our CO2 emissions, it would abate the looming crisis. And we, now we more just don't act rather than we don't know what to do. I would say though, that's on a larger scale, like the process of an individual person making a decision about what to do, that it was easier to get people to buy into the environmental movement when it was a clearer cut answer on what they were supposed to be doing. Because a lot of those decisions are happening on such multiple levels. So like attacking global warming is something that is, it needs, like action needs to be taken on a very large scale and you need concerted action of multiple players across lots of different levels. And that that makes it a much more complicated, harder thing to accomplish than something like, even just like CFCs where you know it's this one particular thing, you knock out that one particular thing. CO2 is a lot more complicated. Well, CO2 is one particular thing, too. But I think in terms of process, like what creates it, it comes from so many different sources and so many sources that are tied in so many ways. You know, I I think that's just a little bit different. Okay. I'm not arguing, though, that we don't know what what causes global warming, just that it's a much more complicated problem and that in terms of sort of seeing it, or even, you know, you could even look at that to some extent to the way that it's been presented and the way that, social views are on it, that it's seen as a very complicated problem, even if it's not inherently as complicated as it's seen, that it's it's harder to get people behind action to mitigate it because it's not as clear-cut in terms of what do we do. I, I think it's perfectly clear what we have to do. Like you said, it's really just been... My understanding is it's 
entirely exclusive to the Republican Party in the United States and the global community that there's any question that what needs to be done is reduce CO2 emissions. And the way we do that is carbon-based power plants and internal combustion engines. And it's very It's, very it's just a lot of big changes. The Transportation changes, um, you know, industrial changes in our country and in other countries. And okay. it's, it's widespread, I would say. Uh, yes, but the hill being steeper is different from not knowing where the hill is. True. I would argue, though, that some of, if you're looking at public opinion, not just your assertion of factual knowledge about what needs to be done, that public opinion, I think, sees it as more convoluted. Yes. I I guess what I want to do is I want to be clear that public opinion in the United States and only the United States is much more convoluted about what we need to do because primarily the oil and coal industries for the last 40, 50 years have devoted enormous resources to complicating an otherwise very simple issue. Yes, and I wasn't arguing against okay. that. There's a wonderful documentary for those who are interested in that called The Merchants of Doubt, directed by Rob, Robert Kenner from 2014. And they go through and talk specifically about how the coal and oil, primarily the oil companies, what they learned from the lawsuit against the tobacco companies uh, in the late 90s by the Attorney General of the United States was, this is exactly how we should proceed. And by merchants of doubt, they mean what they did was increase their efforts to sow doubt about. They understood that inevitably we would come to the point that they, their own internal scientists had realized, which was that absolutely this is what's contributing and causing global climate change and it is going to be disastrous. And so now the only thing that we can do is push the idea that this is still debatable. And by stalling, we're going to be able to milk as many profits out of this as we can before the inevitable change realization comes, which is essentially exactly what the nicotine and tobacco companies did. Anyhow, what I will say is that particularly with regard to the individualistic and the like knowable and defeatable evil I think that aligns very much with U.S. culture and the U.S. culture of fear and um, this notion that it's, I mean, particularly in America, the idea is that a gun is going to keep me safe because I can hold it and I can see it and I can point it at uh, something, presumably, and that is much easier and much feels much more individualistic it feels much more individually accomplishable than paying my taxes and uh, and reducing inequality and creating um, jobs and paying people so that they're not in desperate straits and they have other options for money or or healthcare or treatment for addictions or whatever else that that would make everyone safer. My, you know, as a sociologist, my argument would be that that many other industrialized countries are radically safer, particularly when it comes to guns, than the United States because they have less inequality and more of a social safety net. So that the my favorite argument is if if where you're at in order to feel safe in a society is that you feel like you have to carry a gun at all times, you've already lost the argument. You are already uh, if you are so unsafe that you never you have to feel like you have to carry a concealed weapon at all times. You are not safe. 
you've already lost that argument. You're admitting that you've lost that feeling. And now you're clinging desperately to a band-aid to a wound that ultimately is not being resolved. I, I like what you're saying. Can I jump in for a second there? By all means. And yeah. No, I, pissed off <laughs> no, because I, I think I kept feeling that emotional, that same emotional tone throughout watching Laurie's character in this film. And it almost seemed like, at first I was bothered when, you know, the, the bus overturns and she was, right, like she's been spending her whole life preparing for this showdown and arguably, you know, ignoring these other aspects of her life that she's clearly let go to pieces and you know she doesn't have a good relationship with her daughter and doesn't know her granddaughter and her marriages have failed and she's has a drinking problem and she is agoraphobic and you know she's she's let all the rest of her life go basically for this one pursuit of this one villain or this one like mental argument and then you know oh look coincidence of coincidences because it's the halloween movie right not the real world like this would it'd be very unlikely that this would happen but it happens i suppose occasionally statistically speaking where somebody like that's just right but she's what should have happened is that she wasted her whole life and instead what happened is the bus overturns and she gets to have her moment to shine you know and that that's on the one hand it's like okay this is what we came to see because we came to see the halloween movie it'd be a pretty weird movie <laughs> He never got out of jail and she's just like some crazy person still obsessing over him in the corner and then that's the end of the movie like we know that's not how it's gonna go although i feel like that should be how it would go we, we tax the wealthy and pay for upgrades to the existing metal hospital rather than shipping the shipping the metal patients into a prison instead of <laughs> that, i think that sounds like a great sequel it's, well, I let's reboot the franchise I, I, I honestly was thinking at the beginning like when they were showing all the people in the prison i guess on such they were just presenting them as animals to this extreme that fit with that ideology of the film like they're the monster but it's like man there's something wrong with this system when this is what these people are being i don't know they just they were just they were just being treated and depicted as animals and i felt like that was meant that was not meant to be questionable that was meant to be true from the perspective of the viewer like this is just what this is you know they're these are evil bad people and there's no there's no way to assume that anybody would have any redeeming value or could be turned around or could be anything. It's just, they're just, you know, dogs on a chain ready to attack anybody, which, whatever. Um, but so the bus overturns and he's out and she gets to like have her moment to shine. And it felt very much like the dream of like people who spend their life looking for an easy, and, and I don't say easy villain because it's an easy route. Like it wasn't an easy route for her, but easy as in, Somehow there's something about that mental manageability. Like I want, I want, I don't want to think about, yeah, the broader like societal implications of how I could maybe solve this problem in a way that gets very complicated and becomes diplomatic and becomes just confusing. I want to be like, nope, I got my solution. I got a bullet right here. There's the thing I'm fighting after. Like, that's what I want. That that's, she gets to do it. I guess she gets a moment to shine in that way. But I didn't like what that was like the emotional tone that that was, I feel like stoking in society felt to me very counter to what I feel like society should be, which I think aligns with what you're saying really well. I appreciate you saying that the hospital scene was absolutely like a study in dehumanization. I mean, we had cross cutting with actual animals. We had them also making animalistic noises, barking or cooing like a bird. I can't remember exactly what the variety, all the variations were, 
But yeah, absolutely. Well, and Michael can sense the mask, and then the other prisoners start going crazy, the way animals would when a storm is coming, you know, like they all start riling up because he's getting agitated, and they can all sense it because they're somehow connected. Yeah, I took that more as supposed to be indicative of how evil he is, and they could feel like the evil rising. But regardless, your point still holds that that them being able to sense that regardless of how evil he was, the quote-unquote normals didn't. Ooh, and that's what I was going to say earlier. And even further in support of your what you're saying, the podcasters who were trying to problematize and complicate Michael Myers were not only summarily rejected by Laurie, even if they were sort of entertained by the doctor because he was very interested in in understanding michael too um they are all killed so i mean that's absolutely like oh come on you hippie liberals trying to understand these killers they're fucking evil put them in a chain lock them up or kill them which basically right you should have what you should have done however many years ago is actually just kill them and all your psychiatry and your touchy-feely hocus-pocus bs is absurd he's evil get over it that's what he is if you want to keep him alive fine keep him in a uh locked up in a mental asylum and chained up and uh behind the yellow line and if you're gonna let him out or or kill him and if not you're gonna end up with all kinds of problems absolutely I will say, though, that I agree with what you're saying about the podcasters, but I also was a little bit glad when they were out of the picture because I felt like them at the beginning, their sort of naive desire to stoke up this old thing and to go to... like Okay, first of all, I, I was not on board at all with the the man right at the beginning when they show up at the... Was it a mental institution or a prison? I keep calling it a prison, but... Mental institution, okay. specifically. Okay. Can you say that? When they show up there and he pulls out the mask and is just taunting... Mike Myers and nobody stops him and nobody like that was entirely inappropriate like he he's not if he's really there to try to understand somebody or try to like learn more about something what he was doing was just emotionally totally inappropriate and the fact that nobody intervenes at all just felt again very it, it felt very sensationalist on his from his part and then showing up at Lori's house and you know okay we'll give you three thousand dollars and asking questions that are kind of hard and you know this is clearly a woman who's very troubled regardless of whether she should be or shouldn't or whatever so to sit in her living room and be like hey we want this like final confrontation don't you want to say things to him don't you want to that felt very much to me like i just like some 48 hours expose kind of like like consumerist crap for ratings like i didn't I didn't like what they were doing, and I was glad when they were at least gone from the plot because I didn't want them to be the driving force behind this whole thing, like they somehow make the confrontation happen or something. So I actually liked that their naive attempt, and I would say like just not thoughtful or empathetic way to try to deal with any of this was at least kind of stamped out. Yeah, I and uh, I mean if we're gonna go with the with the murdering someone who's representative of something um, argument, which I am firmly in support of to do that with media representatives who are trying to sensationalize and provoke and, and push this thing back into into the culture in order for them to uh, their own ends 
um, to to kill them really would see would really be the argument that that needs to be or that is a negative that should be snuffed out. No pun intended. That should be stopped and. Um, and there's something in that that aligns with this notion of of some things are just evil and sensationalizing that evil is also not good, which is, uh, I think, a more progressive or, uh, no, it's still a, a conservative argument. And then, um, and then within the movie itself, I mean, it was interesting because the larger context of the film coming out is we are still going to make money off this spree of killing. But within the film itself, the violence is very, uh, blunt. Yeah. I would argue that the violence is not sensationalized. We don't linger on bodies. We don't have elaborate butchering scenes. He dispatches people very coldly, very matter of factly. So it's interesting that the violence itself is, I would argue in the film, is is not sensationalized within the narrative, but the film is is doing precisely that. Uh, or maybe it's not. I don't know. But it's still, uh, whatever. I guess the film is, I don't know if it's sensationalizing it, but it's revisiting and profiting off telling these stories of, telling the same story of evil and violence. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a question there of whether what those the journalists or the podcasters really represented, because I think we both presented very different viewpoints of what they could have been. I think your idea of them as as some sort of like liberal problematizing influence is different from what I said about being sensationalist. And I don't know. I, I liked what you were saying because I thought there was some validity to that potentially, and I also think there's some validity to what I said. So I don't. And okay. they, they would give very different interpretations of what that meant. So I don't know what was intended in that, but I think that's interesting to point both of those out. And I don't know, I mean, overall, it's like, it's like you can look at the film as an intentional piece of like, how do I say this? Like, it's making an argument and it's trying to say that society should feel a certain way or people should be drawn to it for a certain reason. And you can also look at it as a reaction, certainly in a capitalist context, if you look at how much money it made, a reaction to what people will come and consume. And I think in that way, it reverses the causality a little bit when you look at like what what does this have that's interesting to say, less so from a perspective of like they were trying to make this statement and more so from the perspective that its popularity makes a statement about society present day, um, which I do think has probably something to do with this. Well, like you had said, the, the, the comfort in the formula and what that says. And, and it could vary, I mean, in a in a political context like what we're dealing with with Trump, I think there's a very, there's certainly a desire to simplify and demonize the enemy. And so to say that we would have a nostalgia for something like that, even to the extent where like, I would argue, and maybe this is just my experience, I don't know, I'd be curious to know what other people thought, but that the actual experience of watching the battle is no longer scary. Like the the monster no longer scares you so much, the monster actually comforts you because the whole, it's the battle is comforting because it's so concrete yeah that is fascinating and we would love to hear from somebody who saw halloween in 78 in that historical moment and was old enough to remember how that felt that's i mean i love that i think that's super interesting side note i i i mean i've been pushing to watch carrie for months 
I think it will be fantastic to watch Scream as the second film we watched today in light of this discussion. I love all that, and I don't want to change gears if you're not ready. I'll just say I wish I could know what it was like to watch like Halloween back when it first came out, because I was, you know, when I first saw it, and it was already a little bit old by then, I was probably 9 or 10, or I don't know what I was, 12, I have no idea. But anyway, I mean, I didn't see it when it first came out, but but I just mean, when I first saw it, it was already a little bit old, and then I was terrified, because I was a kid, and so maybe it's not true that horror movies at that time, I just, I, I have this feeling that horror movies at that time were actually people were afraid of them and it was the fear-based experience that they that people were drawn to but i don't even know if that's that's true or that's because i was 10 so i'd be really curious to know if that's really if that's really true and if people were scared of this because my aging is like so convoluting that argument that i just i don't know how to read it i think as early as this was in the lineage of slashers i mean i would love to get confirmation as well but i would have to imagine that the fear was the looming scary monster the monster was not comforting because it was a personified evil that was, like you say, targetable and, and manageable. However hard to kill he may be, it's still a clearly identifiable monster. It's not fascist political discourse right. that is creating conditions of possibility for bombers and random, or not random, but hate crimes. Certainly. Yes. And do you think now, it's it's my perception of it not being terribly scary. Do you think that holds? I wonder if people go and see it and they're really scared. And that's, I just, everybody see, hasn't, everybody who'd want to see it, I feel like now has seen these movies over and over and over. Isn't everyone desensitized to it because we're like artistically desensitized, like it's been around for so long? That's why you need to take your toddlers to see Halloween. <laughs> All right. That's a good segue. All right, we can move on to whatever you want to talk about now. I'm really happy with that. <laughs> You got to get them young while they can still be scared. (laughs) (laughs) You can't sit still. You can't handle a movie without the light, with the lights off. Like that's too scary for you. Why are you seeing Halloween? Watch some guy's (laughs) head get stomped into the ground. Entirely inappropriate. (laughs) Uh, um. Right. No one doesn't like it when we turn the lights all the way down. So I'm just going to bring him to like the... The well-lit version of Massacre. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, God, if we were doing titles for episodes, well-lit massacres. <laughs> Absolutely what we would call this. You were going to shift gears. I was going to shift gears. I also think, particularly given our your your argument and your what you've brought up so far, that it is really interesting. The it makes the the variations on the original even more fascinating because in this film there was a complete rejection of men and patriarchal authority and power in addressing an evil man and i say man specific as a gender specific term here of michael myers so in the first film it is the doctor who as representative of psychiatry and and doctoring um, who is a man, which is a an institution of patriarchy and has been used to control and diagnose, control women in particular by diagnosing them as hysterical or otherwise unbalanced or or with the physical establishing the, the male body as the normal and the default and then casting the women as atypical and abnormal and as reduced or less than. It's the police are able to be helpful, not super specifically. 
they don't come in and save the day as Dr. Loomis does, but they are, they do accomplish things throughout the film, if I remember correctly. And of course, law enforcement and justice system are, are classic and it's men police so far as I can remember in the original. Don't remember, uh, I don't remember a father figure in the original. I am a little rusty on the original. I maybe should have watched it. I don't remember a particular father figure in terms of family. But in this film, the cops are ineffective, even if they're well-intentioned, and they are all men. Even if there is a, a black cop, they are all men. The doctor is a man and is evil himself and corrupt, and the husband is fine and well-meaning, but he also ignores and is... I guess he's interesting in that, I mean, he literally is the patriarch of the family, but she, but Lori is ultimately the the overarching matriarch as the as the grandparent, and both the daughter Katie is that her name, Judy Greer, Karen, uh, both Karen and both Karen and the father are question and are dismissive of Lori. But I would argue the father, the husband, is at least as bad because he's, I think he more directly challenges her. But I guess you could argue that he is in doing so in support of his wife. So he is, but regardless, he is still a father. He is still a a patriarch, uh, patriarchal figure, literally representative of a patriarchy as the leader of the household and is dispatched and is ultimately also ineffective the boyfriend is useless and instead of um pining over him and uh um and attaching like her life meaning to him when when uh allison finds out that he's cheating on her and that he's lying to her about drinking and being sort of a bad a bad person she's immediately i'm done with it and leaves and then when his friend also tries to then approach her, surprise kiss her. Uh, She outright rejects him and walks away and leaves him. So there's this totally... uh, So men and and patriarchal representatives of authority and institutions are summarily ineffective and rejected. And it is then, again, even more important that this lineage of women working together by themselves are able to... Uh, trap and kill uh, Michael Myers, who is in this confluence of um, of uh, uh, of all these gender politics, and I think that's even more significant than that we have Laurie being positioned um, where Michael Myers was in the original, and. There's, you know, a lot of critique, particularly both in movies and culturally, that women are so often reduced to their role relative to men. So they are a wife to a husband, they are a sister to a brother. She, I think, Laurie has long been cast as sister to the brother. Michael Myers is for sure the star of the Halloween films. Um, and in this, by shifting to, well, if we get to know Lori, maybe we can understand she then becomes the primary and she is really the agent and the one we're interested in. And he is then defined as 
her brother rather than her as his sister. And I think that's a really important shift in how this is presented. So it's a surprisingly, I would argue it's a surprisingly uh, progressive changes with regard to um, women and a feminist power structure and women's empowerment within the film. That's notable and that's really interesting, particularly as we watch these other films, It and Summer of 84, that call on this nostalgia for this time. We just had these discussions about how they call on this nostalgia, but they don't update any of the toxic identity politics and, and demographic stereotypes and that sort of thing. And in this case, I mean, it's still calling upon that nostalgia. Like you said, there's that real comforting, but they but they did it in a way where they were able to shift at least the gendered politics and then a little bit of race. I mean, we still don't have a queer character. I've been just watching Marion Elm Street too, but still, I mean, it's at least indicative of progress rather than Summer 84 where it's like, we're just going to re- represent all of these really toxic elements of this culture. I mean, that's that's something to be said for that. I love what you're saying there. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it, it was entirely a film about women. When you started listing off the male characters there and, and talking about them, I immediately thought, why are you even mentioning them? Because none of them mattered. None of them needed to be there or had any pivotal role in the film. I mean, aside from Mike Myers, you know, obviously. But I think that's really great. And that they did take those opportunities to update things. It's funny because the whole argument that I was making earlier was that this movie is relying basically exclusively on nostalgia for this type of enemy. And that in doing that, they kept that nostalgia, but they let go all these other pieces. Yeah, that is really interesting in contrast to things that we've seen like Summer of 84, where they absolutely played on those those tropes really heavily. And then to do that and... and I mean, we'll see, but as of now, it, and to do that and have the film end with the women um, ultimately killing Michael Myers, symbolically to me says that if women bond together, trust each other, work together, ignore the, or resist the either well-meaning or nefarious intentions of men and patriarchal structures, they can actually dispatch and and ward off the evil masculine presence. Because in this, there is no, there's no doubt. There, we got no like, is he really dead? It was, he's done. He is trapped in a basement. We are burning him alive in a trap that she spent 40 years. It's like a done deal. It's not, it's not what I was saying earlier, where like, if you leave it open to a sequel, well then the abnormal can always creep back in and re-threaten our civility and our our happy white suburban middle class upper middle class ideas of whatever this was a this was a a definitive end and that that then makes it uh i don't know there's something really like positive and empowering to women in that in that statement now if they make a sequel I was going to say, do you really think that was the end? Because I, I thought the same thing as we panned away. We've seen so much of this, and certainly with Mike Myers' character in particular, that he is so hard to actually put down. That, I mean, yes, we saw him get trapped down there, but maybe there was a hole in the wall and the window and the whatever, and he was able to... I mean, yes, she had this... We can believe that she has this... She spent 40 years obsessing over this, apparently. Um, that that but, will be a very significant question is i mean there were bars in the windows we saw that she had this intricate system of bars and gas lines and 
And she wasn't just burning up the basement, which what I was like, just torch the basement. Close the door. Like, you don't need to keep burning down the whole house. She's like, I'm burning it all down. So, yes, it will be a it will be a very interesting to see. I mean, they could reboot it like like Zombie did, where it's not in the in the original Halloween universe. It's a reimagining of the character. I would have to imagine with these sorts of numbers, they will they will somehow find a way to produce an, a new Halloween. But to have it, but whether or not it is actually a sequel to this or just uh, characters inspired by would would radically change that interpretation. But as it stands now. In, in terms of the ideological argument that I'm making about what this film represents potentially, and again, I would, I would put the causality not in the direction of the film is asserting that society should be this way, but more so that the film is displaying to us that society may be this way. The, the line at the end, speaking of his trap in the basement, was important where she said, it's not a cage, it's a trap. As in, it wasn't a cage for her to be living down there all this time, but it was a trap for him. And I thought they highlighted that because she started to say it and then they f- complete the thought several minutes later and I thought that was meant to be her kind of shining moment that like what she was doing made sense and this was the right thing to do and if the ideology really is which I find problematic but if the ideology really is that this is focusing on this kind of devil you know this kind of demon is what we should be doing and that ignoring all your other aspects of your life and these complicated solutions and whatever and just living obsessed as she did with trying to fix attack this one bad guy that you can wrap your hands around that it wasn't a it wasn't a cage for her it was a trap for him it was all worth it and she she got him and what i really was thinking when they said that as a culminating point was so you're saying it was worth it for her it's a cage for her as in it took her entire life away it was a trap for him as in yes maybe she got him i probably sort of or she didn't i don't know if they're going to make a sequel or not but let's just say she did she got him was it really worth it was that really the way that she should be living her life and other people should be living their lives. And I'm not saying you can't maybe find a tangible bad guy and go hunt them down and whatever, but in the grand scheme of changing the world, what did you accomplish? How many people did you save? What did you help compared to what you could have been doing with your entire life had you been focusing on addressing the the more nuanced, I guess, evils? That immediately makes me think of this idea that that the wealthy have increasingly, maybe not the super wealthy, but the reasonably wealthy have have essentially caged themselves in. A gated community and an armed guard at the front is exactly the structure of a prison. It's just a really nice, fancy one. And if you can't, again, if you can't walk free and, and not live behind a wall, you're really not free in the first sure, place. Exactly. And so you are caging yourself. And then, like you're saying, if the ideological argument is, oh, well, that's all worth it. What we really need to do in America is put up more walls around neighborhoods and more gated communities and more, I don't know, whatever, barriers and, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's really troubling and problematic <laughs> and not good. I do. The whole, the one piece that sort of countered that that I really appreciated that they did was to say that he was really the lone mental patient who was dangerous. We got three over here watching, kind of catching butterflies or whatever, which was really kind of nice. Like we're we're not just saying that the mental uh, mentally ill are are deranged and violent and and you have to be afraid of all of them. No, many of them really just 
need monitoring and supervision because they may something else may happen. But but the vast majority of them are are really not dangerous or anything. It's this one case who is really the evil, the dangerous. He is an exception. And so, like you said, I'm inclined to be generous with the film, partly because I liked it, but partly because it updated many things in ways that I thought were done well. As you point out, Laura, I think it also, in doing so, may have... It, it may be both very very progressive on some ways and very conservative on others that I find problematic, but it at least did make progress in a number of ways, and it did so in a way that they're still able to have it be a popular, successful film. And so I, I like to give them some leniency in that because it's it would be quite a request to ask them to make a film that also... To, to make a film where we know in the universe of the film that the personification of evil is Michael Myers, and so it is ultimately going to be an individualized threat, and somehow make that film and have it not be, or have it also be indicative of or attached to more nebulous and atmospheric and, and distributed sources of social problems. I mean, that's no. a lot to ask for a film, you know? And I'm not arguing that it should. That's why I keep saying that. I think the causality goes the other way. I think the, they were making a sequel to Halloween. It's going to yeah. be a sequel to Halloween. It's, I'm not asking for a, a psychological study. Maybe I would. I would enjoy this movie. But a psychological study on Laurie's, you know, situation. <laughs> like, and what she really could be doing with her life to, like, right. you know, somehow metaphorically relate to how we should deal with the world and interact with each other in society. Or but, Michael Myers goes around poisoning the water supply. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, there are places we could go with yeah, it. But, just, but that's not... Yeah, I, mean, I agree with you. I think it, it was what it was. That, I don't think you can fault them on that any more than you can fault them for just making another Halloween movie. But I think it's the... I think it's the other way around. I think it's it's what it says about like why it's popular might tie into that sentiment. So it's not so much to say that the movie's promoting that sentiment, just to say that I think the fact that people want to go see it may indicate, or at least seem to indicate to me that that sentiment is prevalent enough that this feeds into that. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. I didn't, I, I guess I, I was trying to agree with you in, in saying that, but I appreciate you further explaining that point because for me, that's like, oh, then I can... I can like it even more because even though if the causality is shifted in the way that you say, then I feel like I can like it even more because I am less responsible for faulting the film in the, for the ways it is perhaps conservative. And I'm, I mean, I'm happy to do that because I like the film. (laughs) That was good. Did you actually enjoy the film or you said you kind of got bored? I don't like seeing movies I've seen before. And it, it was so much of that to me that, I, the nostalgia for that kind of movie didn't win me over enough, but I really enjoyed the conversation I was having with myself while watching it. And once I started thinking along those lines, it really tied things in metaphorically in such a way that like, oh, cool, now Laurie's character is really interesting because she's like, that she's the balance between a wasted life and a hero. And whatever line, like whichever way she ends up coming out at the end is like the stance on that viewpoint. And I just, I find that really... Interesting. I'm really tempted. Can I throw in just in closing here? You can cut it out if you want to. A cute story about Noah that I, it just feels very much like this. We were at a gymnastics studio a little while ago and it was like an open play thing. And so there were a bunch of little kids his age and he's like almost five. Well, at the time he was younger, he was maybe four, maybe three. 
there were some balls in the room, like little bouncy balls, you know, and it's like a thing about little kids that they like love balls. Like they'll just, they just want them and they want to hold them and they want to throw them, but then they want it to be theirs when they go get it again. There are other kids around. And so it becomes problematic and you can't have like a kid's area and put balls out because it just becomes Lord of the Flies. It becomes this like mass war over the balls. It's really, it totally is. And it's super bizarre. And so you, they had them there. And then you see all this awful kid behavior happening because these kids are trying to protect their ball. And I mean, I'm not exaggerating at all. People who have kids this age will be entirely on board with this story. You know, and kids want to go jump on the trampoline or something, but then they, oh, well, here, mom, hold my ball because it becomes very important to maintain this ball because God forbid somebody else get their ball. And you just see the this like ugliness of demeanor and, you know, just coming out. And Noah, at some point, I don't know if he had a ball or he lost it or he was a little bit upset over something. And I called him over and tried to have this probably slightly age inappropriate, like too old for him conversation with him. But I was like, you know, you have to you have to do a balance sheet here and you have to think about how much fun is it to play with the ball and how much fun is it to be here in this gymnastics studio where you have all these cool things you can do and stuff you can jump on and rings you can hang on and whatever and not have the responsibility of protecting the ball. Like... You know, because yes, you get a little bit of joy out of owning that ball and keeping that ball from all these other children, but look at all the joy you can have if you just let the ball go, you know? And then suddenly, and now you have way more stuff to play on because all these other kids are obsessed with like fighting with each other over the balls. And I don't know if he got it or not. I think he got the gist from me that like, I didn't think he should want a ball and then he went and did something else. But I will say, I think he had a happier time at the playground. And I, I often think that we as adults need to take that metaphor that like, what is the ball that you're like trying so hard you're focused on and you're protecting and you're letting it stir up all these like nasty emotions in you just because you're obsessed with that and a little bit i kept getting that sense in this movie that like laurie that mike myers was her ball you know like she was so obsessed with this thing that everything else in life didn't matter and all this other joy she could have had through her whole life she was unable to see because she was so focused on that so yeah i don't know i think i think the larger metaphorical point probably holds even outside of the context of like trying to find evil just in general my self-help tip for the day <laughs> oh, that's great it, i i literally I, sh- I mean i should have thought that i mean this should apply to my life literally like every day but somehow for some reason earlier this week i thought very specifically of the fight club quote the things you own end up owning you yes and for those who don't know i border on a hoarder i'm a collector and i'm not particularly good at keeping and organizing and arranging my things. I just know what they are and where they are and that I like them. And at some point this week, I thought specifically, probably because I went and saw Alex Pardee, who's a artist who makes, I'll wear, I'm actually going to wear one of his shirts tonight, but he does the rainbow with the teeth, that shirt. Anyway, he actually came and did a gallery installation here on Saturday. And so I have a couple of his movie posters from way long ago and I wanted to get them signed and I spent two full hours Saturday looking for one of those posters and could not find it and it was like I think that's what (laughs) you're right yeah it's a balance sheet so (laughs) so yes and for those who don't know I'm probably between music movies and everything else I'm I'm bordering on a thousand posters so found the other one just fine it was right there <laughs> but anyway so yes I, I appreciate that i think absolutely michael myers was laurie's ball the one other thing i was going to say was in terms of this film quoting the earlier film was when allison looks out the window and laurie is the one standing across the street looming staring at her that was another you know laurie has shifted positions to be the like 
I don't know if looming figure, but kind of looming figure. Oh, and then I was just going to say from what you said, I, I did also appreciate that the, the women were fully developed characters. They were, you know, they had other, they had things going on. And I mean, Allison is a national honor society was the thing that she was doing. She could have totally been a cheerleader or I don't know, some other, no offense to cheerleaders, but she could have been involved in some vapid stereo or at least stereotypic activity for a. And they flipped Bonnie and Clyde. Right. And they gender swapped Bonnie and Clyde. Absolutely. And mom, I, I guess mom wasn't real. It was mostly defined in relationship to her mother, but she was at least defined in relationship to her mother, not to her husband. And so, yeah, I mean, I, that, that I really have to say was, was good. Did we have, oh, I was going to say, I guess we did have a, still a nod to the syntax. Syntax where the, her friend's boyfriend who smokes pot ends up killed. She ends up killed even though they specifically, she specifically says, Vicky? Yeah. Vicky specifically says, oh, I'm going to dry hump you. So like they're not having sex and so she still dies. So like the sin is like the sex equals death, drugs equals death of that first wave. So they kind of played with that, I guess, a little bit. A little bit, maybe. And then Lori drinks, even though she's been sober, apparently. But she still lives. I feel good calling it. I think I do, too. Ah, I got to say one more thing. It fits very well with our inspired title of Horror Films Are a Collection of Nightmares, that if we are watching a similar mythology 40 years later, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill somehow tapped into a societal collective nightmare. And maybe now that nightmare is, I guess what you're arguing with that parallel would be the nightmare is now comforting because it's better than the new thing we're afraid of. Yeah. Or like it's a recurring nightmare. You're like, Oh, I've had this nightmare before, you know, at least I can deal with it. I know what it sparks it or whatever. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And then the last thing I want to say is I never knew this, and I guess many people never knew this, but the Bechdel cast recently did an episode on Halloween as well, and they talk with a person who describes how influential and important Deborah Hill was into conceiving and writing and producing the film, even though John Carpenter directed the film and I think as it, not I think and as most well known as as a writer of Halloween, it was in fact co-written with his then wife Deborah Hill, and their podcast discusses that. And their podcast I recommend if you're interested in that discussion. That was something I never knew, and it's unfortunate because as with so many things, it minimizes the contribution of of women and um, her her impact and her influence may well be why Laurie Strode is such a iconic woman character in a genre that is notoriously unfriendly to women. Yeah. I, I, well, I, again, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I think it will make a great prelude to our discussion about Scream tonight. Great. If you have listened this far, as always, we thank you. This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. You can reach us or find us on Instagram at Collective Nightmares, on Twitter at Collect Night, N-I-G-H-T. We have a Patreon page with 
exclusive additional content. We have, if you subscribe or rate or review our podcast anywhere and take a screen grab of that and show us and we will send you swag. Uh, and you can also email us, marshall at collectivenightmares.com. Or laura at collectivenightmares.com. And happy Halloween. <laughs> Horror films are our collective nightmares. Welcome. This is the. <laughs> Let me not yell at people. It's the flip side of the ground. <laughs> A happy middle middle ground. Welcome. This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. Where oh fucking Christ. It's tough because I, I was gonna say it's tough because you want. I'm inclined. Hmm. Okay, let me see if I can actually start this thought. Uh...